Hey everybody, welcome to episode 72 of Literary Disco, Reeling Through Life. Today we talk movies when we discuss Tara Eisen's essay collection, Reeling Through Life, How I Learned to Live, Love, and Die at the Movies. But up first, we'll do a movie-themed bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I will pull down our favorite book about movies from our bookshelves and discuss. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hello, hello. Hey, everybody. Todd, you sounded so enthusiastic. <laughs> Julia, Julia, you just sounded very strange just now. I... Hello, hello. Hey, What's up, bros? Hey. <laughs> so Julia is leaving for the Galapagos Islands tomorrow morning. I am. What are you, what are you doing in the Galapagos, Julia? I will be going on vacation looking for animals. <laughs> That's the whole entire itinerary. <laughs> Finding the origin of the species the entire time. Oh, yeah. I'm going to discover evolution. For the first time. <laughs> what what uh, what books are you bringing with you to to read while you're in the Galapagos? Oh boy. Well, it's all Galapagos books. Uh, I'm bringing Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut, which I believe we're going to read in a few weeks after I get back. I know um, nothing about I, this book, by the way. Is it actually set in the Galapagos, or like how is it related to the Galapagos? Indeed. Okay. I don't want to say. Just read all it. Right. All yeah, right. I've read it before. Uh, it's really good. Um. And uh, I'm also reading The Beak of the Finch, which is the story of Darwin's finches and, you know, how they're evolving. And I haven't read much of it yet, so I can't say a lot more. And then a couple other ones about how we're destroying the planet and everything will die. Oh, and um, <laughs> one, called, uh, one called Lonesome George, which I'm sure many of our listeners know, um, Lonesome George was, okay, on one of the Galapagos Islands, they thought that the giant tortoises had gone extinct, and every island has a different breed of tortoise. So they're unique to the island, they've adapted to the islands, Darwin, Darwin, Darwin. Uh, They thought that uh, on this one island they were extinct, and then they discovered after like 50 years of not seeing any of them, uh, there was this one tortoise who they named George, and they um, they tried to get him to breed with other tortoises to kind of at least in some way push the lineage forward, but he recently died, and uh, he was just <gasps> on display at the Natural History Museum. George, so, oh my God. George um, couldn't get it on. He's a very famous turtle. Yeah. Yeah, tortoise. There was, a, there was an incident a couple months ago here in the desert where a 250-year-old tortoise was on the freeway on the on Interstate Aww. 10, and someone hit it and <laughs> killed it. Oh, I read about that. Horrible. And I was like, oh, my God. If you, It's not like, like you know, sometimes you're in a car, you hit something, and it's horrible. You, you've hit some animal, and it's terrible, and, and it's dead. But it's not like you just killed an animal. It's like you just killed history. Aww. History was just ground under the tires of your Corolla. Aww. That's horrible. Yeah. Um, I but actually, tasty. this reminds so tasty. me, this, so I actually um, have been reading a poetry collection. Um, have you guys heard of Inseminating the Elephant? Um, <laughs> it's a great poetry collection. I'm, I'm blanking on her name. Lucia Perillo is the, is the poet's name. Lucia Perillo. And uh, Julia, you will really love this, this collection of poems. Um, cool. They're, they're not super uplifting because it's a lot of, a lot of, it's all animal based, not all, but almost all animal based. And there's one about turtles that is beautiful, but so disturbing because she just talks about uh, dissecting turtles in a class, and then. Oh, but it's, she uses the she uses a lot of animal metaphors. Um, like one of the best ones, I'm blanking on the title, and I don't have the book in front of me. But you know, she she talks about um, animals going extinct, and 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 uh, a, the the last carrier pigeon that went extinct in in America. Um, and she describes this this carrier pigeon, you know, the last one dying, and then she relates it to her romantic life, and you know, like it's really brilliant how she starts to feel the passage of time, and she feels like, is this going to be the last like moment of kissing somebody that I'm going to have? You know, hmm. is 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 hmm. the like kisses in the rain moment going extinct in my life? Is kind of the, the oh, it's wow. really br- brilliant. Um, but yeah, inseminating the elephant, it kind of goes along with what we're talking about right so now, good. and I think you'll you'll really like it, Julia, especially. I am going to buy that. Yeah. Uh, that my, sounds fascinating. I just texted it to myself, and my phone auto-corrected it to insinuating the elephant, so <laughs> my phone's approved. <laughs> uh, I remember, like, with, with um, 
Nokia phones or like you know the old phones where you didn't have a, a keyboard you had to like use the numbers to get to oh, when God, you had a text message horrible. like that and like oh, everyone's yeah. name would always be autocorrected like I always came up as sheep whenever people try to write <laughs> yeah. to me it would correct rider to sheep you're such a follower <laughs> my name frequently is uh, corrected to God on people's oh that texts. makes sense yeah yes it's that wow. one t man uh, that one t has haunted you your entire life have we ever it, actually described why that happened like why did your parents decide on the one t the one d one, one d. d yeah sorry <laughs> i'm I, i'm named for someone who um was english who smuggled my grandfather's family out of russia oh. in 1919 so I'm named for him. Is that like the proper way to spell Todd in England or something? Or British? Yeah. Okay. The, the people in England rep understand that the name Todd is a one syllable word and therefore don't need to have Todd. I guess that's still one syllable. We have to go yeah. through the pronunciation of my name again. The, okay. The, <laughs> well, um, we decided well, uh, before we started recording that we were going to do an efficient episode. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to keep going. But before we talk about movies, let me just say one thing. If you guys uh, that are listening don't follow our Twitter feed, go and check it out because this last week um, people were sending us photos of their bookshelves. And Julia and Ryder and I spent a lot of time on our phones and iPads expanding the pictures and looking at every single nook and <laughs> cranny of everyone's bookshelves. I, I find other people's bookshelves absolutely fascinating. Um, and so there's all these pictures of everyone's shelves. Go and take a look at it. The one thing that the three of us really noticed, though, a lot of Twilight books. Yeah. A lot of Twilight books. I guess we yeah, shouldn't be shocked. surprised that the most popular, like one of the most popular books in the world is actually popular. Popular. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Turns out. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that big of a shock. But we, we love those books or those bookshelf pictures. So if you're out there and you're listening, um, any old time you want to send us a photo of your bookshelf, we will look at it, retweet it, and either judge you publicly or privately uh, via email with one another. I nice. have not done mine yet. I'll have to do mine tonight. Yeah, I don't think, Ryder, you'd put up a picture of your shelves either. No, I, I feel like somebody there. else had posted a photo. Um, Danielle Fischel from Boy Meets World came over one time and took posted a photo of, of my bookshelf on Twitter. So I sort of felt like it was already done, but maybe I should do do my new bookshelf now, now that moved. I moved. And you've moved. I know, but I just moved the same bookshelf. Like, I brought, you know, the big book, the actual shelves with me. So they didn't change all that much. Just threw away you just some. just sealed them up when you moved? Well, I threw away the Kant's transcendental idealism. <laughs> that's, that's gone. A couple other really pretentious books that I realize I'm never going to read. Right. Uh, so, so in my bookshelves, you can see the giant Agatha Christie biography that uh, I've carried around for 20 years. Yeah. So, Ryder. Yes. Uh, book about movies or containing movies that you like. Yeah, so I thought about this. I, I think I'm gonna. I was gonna go a little more complicated, but I'm gonna go pretty straightforward and just say Easy, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls by Peter Biskind. If anybody out there hasn't read it, you definitely should read it. Anybody who's interested in film and the history of film, um, it's his book. He was a writer for was it Rolling Stone or um, Premier? I don't know. He was an entertainment journalist. And then he decided to write this book just uh, focusing on the film, the great films of the 60s and 70s and the sort of golden age of Hollywood. And um, it is amazing. It's, it's, you know, kind of the definitive history. Um, there are a lot of people who debate his version of history because he sort of posits what is now, the, you know, like I said, the, def the standard ver the interpretation of what happened in the 60s and 70s in Hollywood, which was that the auteur theory took over and all these brilliant um, individual directors and writer directors were able to get financing for films in the face of the crumbling studio system and make amazing movies. And then near the end of that era, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg ruined everything by making really, really good successful movies that were aimed more for children's sensibilities and now everything has been aimed at box office success. That's the sort of standard history that he presents. And um, he backs it up with lots of great interviews. But that's not really the best part about the book. The best part about the book is just learning about the making of all of these great films. He sort of starts with um, uh, Easy Rider as like for him the beginning of the era. And he takes it all the way up until the end of the 70s. I think it ends right around... Yeah, it ends with, like, Star Wars. Um, 
Mm. And it's just an incredible, it's so fun because not only if you, you know, don't know some of the movies, like when I first read the book, I didn't know a lot of these movies. So it introduced me to, you know, what movies I should watch from that time period. But it also gives you so many great juicy tidbits because that era is all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, these people were so messed up that we're making these movies. Uh, the amount of drugs and sex that was going on on film sets and in Hollywood at the time, it's just incredible. Um, but it's also one of the books, uh, you know, that I love reading where you realize that things that you think of, like, you know, we often imagine ourselves as sort of small parts of history, like big important historical events are going on around us and we're just like a small part of the world. And it's one of those books that that brings home like how arbitrary it is when something actually becomes a huge success and when somebody, you know, makes that great work of art that defines an entire generation. Like when you read about somebody like say Dennis Hopper and how messed up he was and how like sort of, you know, random his life had been up until the moment he got the financing to make Easy Rider and, and, and also like how crazy the filming of Easy Rider and the book presents it all so well that it just starts to feel like anything is possible artistically. And it's one of those books that gets you really excited. I mean, obviously for me as a filmmaker, it got me really excited for what is, you know, what I could write and direct. But I think anybody who has any sort of artistic bone in their body will get excited by, you know, the prospect. It's one of those books that just makes you feel like any, anything can happen culturally if you, if you believe in it enough. And isn't it cool or interesting that lately all the, the big movies, or not all of them, but a lot of them, are going back to that 70s style of storytelling and filmmaking. So, oh, yeah. you know, Argo or mm-hmm. um, uh, American Hustle or yeah. um, The Most Violent Year, which just came out. Um, all these movies that feel like they're Brian De Palma or Martin Scorsese films from 1977. Yeah. Um, and, and the same kinds of stories. Do you have an idea of why that's happening? Is it just people have been so influenced by those films in film schools? Oh, yeah. Or is it... A return to the quality? Well, I think it's the defining American cinema, you know? I mean, we took what was happening in France. I mean, it really started in France with the new wave in the 60s. And that influence, you know, and it's it's such an interesting relationship because what happened to Hollywood in, in like the 30s and 40s is that the kinds of stories that were that Hollywood would make, you know, it was a machine, it was an industry, and they became very predictable and sort of codified into this you know, what we think of now as the traditional Hollywood movie, the happy ending, a romance, you know, all these sort of, you know, basic ideas. And then you you had a lot of censorship because there was a, a code, you know, that America, like literally a legal code that America followed. Mm-hmm. And so the most interesting films that were really breaking barriers were being made foreign in foreign contexts. Um, and in the 60s, the French really rose up with, they're amazing films. You had, you know, the new the the new wave, which is Godard and Truffaut and all these names that that people probably know, and um, how America ended up being influenced by them. And of course, the irony is that they were so inspired by American films, but they were making much grittier, more interesting, formally uh, crazy films. You know, they were breaking every rule that American Hollywood studio system had set. They were breaking and and. When America finally caught up to that with movies like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider and films that, you know, didn't have happy endings um, and didn't have, you know, were violent, were uh, violent in a very, you know, visceral way and then involved sex and swearing. And they just broke a lot of rules that had been sort of culturally defined and legally defined up until that or confining up until that point. And, um, you know, so I, I it's. It, it was the, the 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 period that we all now look back on and say like this is where America movie culture was made like this is where we really made great works of art out of cinema we weren't just trying to make money as a culture and um, and it's kind of the last time that that happened I mean the people mm-hmm. talk about the '90s because there was an independent film movie in the '90s and actually Peter Biskin's next book was called Down and Dirty Pictures and it. It's about the 90s. And he starts it with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was at the Sundance Film Festival in 1989. And that he looks at that as the sort of birth of a new movement, which was independently financed smaller films because the technology was cheaper to make movies. Um, But that didn't really last either. And now we're in this crazy, crazy era where everything's a comic book movie. Everything's pre-existing material. Studios only make 
maybe 10 to 12 movies a year. I mean, not even. That was, I mean, that's outdated number. So we're in a really weird time where everything is about how much money something can make. And the business has changed so much that I think any director that wants to say something, be that P.T. Anderson, Wes Anderson, uh, you know, David O. Russell, they look back on the 70s the 60s and 70s is the last time when artists were given free reign to make the kinds of movies they wanted to make without the economic pressure that we feel nowadays. And it's really sad, you know, um, it's just the reality. And, and the irony is movies are so cheap to make, you know, we can shoot a film now with really high quality cameras for no money. Um, right. But we, no one will see it. No one, we can't get distribution because nobody's going to the movie theater anymore. Uh, everybody's downloading everything for free. And it's a, you know, it's a much bigger topic than we really have time to cover here, especially since we're supposed <laughs> to stay small. That was an incredible but... <laughs> overview. I don't even know what yeah. to contribute. Well, I just think point. that, anyway, the, the bottom line is- You also just earned a, that was a the... unit in film studies, Julia. <laughs> that was the last <laughs> golden age of film. For, for so anybody so a lot of the great directors now they have to reference that era you know they they're ripping off that era or they're they're pining for that era um, because it doesn't exist anymore so that's what everybody right. wants to be doing well that um, segues really well into what I wanted to talk about so can I take it from here please that'd yes. be okay <laughs> please do uh, so well I, I'm gonna sneak into here because one's one that I've mentioned before and I'm just going to mention it again in case people didn't hear it this is one of my favorite books and was given to me while we were at Bennington um, and I've mentioned it a million times it's uh, The Conversations by oh, Walter yes. it's a it's a conversation between uh, Walter Murch and uh, Michael Andache mm. and it's all about editing so it's about editing film versus editing a novel and it's one long interview that's pretty much 50-50 on those two subjects and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, it's a hard-to-find book, so you pretty much probably have to order it online, but um, it's really, really great and it's a book I know I'm going to have forever because it's just really thoughtful and, and wonderful. I bought this uh, book because you mentioned it on Literary Disco. Yeah. Yeah, one and of our early episodes. It? Oh, it's amazing. I love it so much. I mean, yeah. I knew who Walter Murch was, obviously, like, and he's, he's so influential and kind of one of those... Le- Hollywood legends that like most people don't even know who he is outside of Hollywood, but um, it, it's it was, it's such a fascinating book. I love that book. Yeah, yeah, it's really great. That was recommended to me by Tom Bissell, um, a great writer who was one of uh, my teachers at Bennington. And Tom's got some awesome books, so our super listeners can go uh, go find his stuff. Anyway, the book that uh, relates to what Ryder's talking about, and I just popped up in my mind as I was preparing for this. Is um Jonathan okay, here's me not knowing how to pronounce someone's name. Jonathan Lethem? Latham? Which one is it? I say Lethem. Yeah. The writer. I say Lethem. But okay. I, I've heard people say Lethem. Terry Gross says it's Lethem, so therefore yes, it's Lethem. Back to the episode. Jonathan Lethem, uh, I back when he was really popular with Motherless Brooklyn and Fortress of Solitude, he had a tiny little essay collection come out, um, which is really good. It's called The Disappointment Artist, and it's just kind of a scattershot thing of his life and him growing up and all this stuff. But there's a couple of great essays about him watching Star Wars as a kid. Um, He watched Star Wars 21 times in theaters when he was a kid, and then the next year he watched 2001 A Space Odyssey 21 times. So it's exactly what Ryder's talking about. It's this (laughs) extreme power of nostalgia and excitement over that time in filmmaking and it's just really beautiful piece of thinking and i one thing i really like about it is that it's someone writing about movies who isn't involved in movies in any way i mean this book we're about to talk about and a lot of the books that we read about movies are people who are within the culture so it's really nice to hear from a writer who <laughs> watches movies but has nothing to do with the production of movies in any way. So it's a really good essay collection, and I wish I had it in my hands to read a passage. But His essay um, on The Jonathan... Searchers is in there too, right? The John Ford? Yeah. Yeah, yep. that's a great essay. Yeah, that's a really good yeah. essay. That's probably even better, actually, than the right. Because Star it's all, stuff. it's so complicated. Like his relationship to the movie is so complicated because he's like, basically, he's like, how can I like this racist, awful, sexist film? <laughs> and yet I love it. And I have to acknowledge that it's great filmmaking. It, it, it's right. a really good essay. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. 
so my, my I have two picks also. The first one is I, I want to talk about my favorite scene of people talking about movies in a book, which ooh, is ooh. in the Elmore Leonard novel Out of Sight. Um, and this is a scene that became famous when it was in the film version with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez back before George Clooney was George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez was Jennifer Lopez, um, where George Clooney's or Jack Foley, the character George Clooney plays in the movie, has escaped from prison. And as he's escaping from prison, he grabs the U.S. Marshal Karen Sisko, who is there at the prison to serve a warrant, grabs her, throws her into a trunk, and they speed off uh, into the night. Um, with his friend Buddy driving the car. Uh, and it's a great scene in the book. It's a really good scene in, in the movie, too, because um, George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez look pretty good, and Steven Soderbergh, who wrote and directed Sex, Lies, and Videotape, yeah. makes it look beautiful. Um, you know, lots of great filmmaking in that movie. Um, but here's this bank robber who's abducted a federal marshal, and they're in the trunk of a car, and Jack Foley isn't a traditional bad guy. You know, he, he ends up being sort of a romantic character in the book, and they're in the trunk, and he starts talking to her, trying to make her feel comfortable about his favorite movies. And, um, you know, they, they talk about Three Days of the Condor. And, uh, you know, Jennifer Lopez, or not Jennifer Lopez, Karen Sisko says, you know, I never got, as, you know, I, I thought those two people got together too quickly. Um, you know, and they start talking about the culture, basically, of these crime movies where there's a romantic element of the good guy and the bad guy right. together and how improbable it is. <laughs> and in the book, it's, it's a longer scene than it is in the movie. Um, but what it really does is it, it presents this shared language of movies between these two people from entirely different worlds, the bad guy and, and the cop, and Karen Sisko is the cop. And how they have that bond above everything else is that they love they love the same movies. Um, and you know they talk about Robert Redford when he was young and Faye Dunaway and all this stuff. And it's just you know it, it's this great sort of kinetic moment of people talking about the things they love even when they don't have anything else in common. And one person has a gun to the person's head. It's entirely <laughs> it's entirely improbable, but it I think it it actually sort of ties into what we're going to talk about with with Tara Eisen's book here in a minute which is that cinema has a unique way of, um, of bridging a lot of pretty big gulfs between yeah. people. Um, mm -hmm. So I love that scene. For and sure. then um, I love a book called My Movie Business by John Irving, um, which is a memoir of his various trials and tribulations getting adaptations of his books turned into films. Oh. Um, I've never and, heard of and that. And how awful many of them have been. Uh, and then, you know, the challenge of turning Cider House rules from a 500-page book into a two-hour movie, um, you know, the, the combining of all these characters. It's a, it's a fascinating book about um, the writing process, but also about expectations and mm -hmm. the difference between books and movies and the difference of being a writer of books and a writer of movies and, 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 and the things that don't translate. And John, John Irving's a little curmudgeonly. Uh, also, he's a little pissed off in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, that comes through. Um, and so it, it, it's a really slim book. It's like, a, like 185 pages. Um, but anyone out there who is curious about how writers feel about their own works being adapted, uh, John Irving's take on it is, is, is pretty compelling. Um, awesome. But I, and there's so many scenes, by the way, now in, in movies where people are talking about movies, this sort of self-referential thing that goes on, yeah. um, that it's become a thing. But you didn't, you, you didn't used to see it a lot. Um, but Elmore Leonard always has characters talking about it. It's sort of like now it's, it's a Tarantino-esque thing. He kind of right. did it. Well, Tar <laughs> Tar Tarantino doesn't exist without Elmore Leonard. Right. Oh, like, totally, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there's no Pulp Fiction without, without Elmore Leonard. Right. Uh, or Jackie Brown, since it was an Elmore Leonard book. <laughs> um, but that that's a good segue into what we're going to talk about next, which is Tara Eisen's memoir slash book of film studies, Reeling Through Life, How I Learned to Live, Love, and Die at the Movies, which we'll talk about when we get back from a break. everybody this is the fake voice we use when we return from an arbitrary break where we've just been talking about other things hey 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 <laughs> fake voice it's just it's just more announcer hey yeah. it's hey. Todd Goldberg here we're going to talk about Tara Eisen 
It gets um, your attention. It's your, it does. It's your stripper you announcer voice. Let's be honest. That's exactly. Oh god. <laughs> oh boy. If only I could do that again. Yeah. Star to the main stage. Star to the main stage. Uh, so Tara Eisen. Um, for those of you not familiar with Tara, she. Um, might be best known to a lot of you for one of the movies she wrote. And she co-wrote the screenplay for the cult classic comedy Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter is Dead, um, which came out in the 80s? No, early I think 80s? it was later. I think it feel like, I feel like it might have been early. Le- early 90s? All I know oh, is Oh, it was I early always... 90s because she talks about when she started writing films in the book. I always wanted to rent that movie from Blockbuster, but I was, like, afraid to ask my mom because it looked so crazy. But I remember oh. staring at the, the poster, or the cover of the VHS, being like, what the fuck is that movie? It, it's a classic comedy. It's very funny. Uh, it, it reminds me of being uh, 16 and watching it. Um, but So she wrote that, and, you know, you can see that on HBO, Showtime, TBS, TNT, and The CW, pretty much 24 hours a day, seven days a week somewhere in America. Um, So she wrote that film. She also is the author of the novel A Child Out of Alcatraz, the novel The List, and the novel Rockaway, um, which came out last year. Um, She is, as well, for Ryder and Julia's knowledge, if they did not know, um, she graduated from the first class at Bennington. Really? Uh, I was wondering, because she mentioned Vermont graduation from her MFA program in 99. I was like, was that Bennington? I was like, no, we probably wouldn't know that. It it must have been another MFA program in Vermont. Oh, that's cool. She was like the first or second class, something like that, very early on. Yeah. Yeah. That's Um, awesome. And so I've known known Tara for years. We taught with one another at uh, UCLA, and then later she worked for me at UCR. Um, And so I've known Tara for years. Um, And in fact, she used to, we used to share a wall at UCLA, so she would come out into the hallway and be like could you shut the fuck up <laughs> you she are so fucking loud yeah would she swear yeah, that much yeah. at you it. or yes God. she would because i was really you know i'm i'm in case the listeners don't know i'm pretty fucking loud um and then i get all hyped up and i'm talking about the work um at any rate um so reeling through life is a collection of essays um about life growing up and the influence of film on Tara's life. It's broken into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine sections. How to go crazy, how to be Lolita, how to be a Jew, a section I particularly enjoyed, how to lose your virginity, how to be a drunk, a section I particularly enjoyed, how to be a slut, a section I particularly enjoyed, um, how to die with style, how to be Mrs. Robinson, and then how to be a writer. Um, and in each of these sections, she goes through the films that had a profound effect on her in each of the subject matters. Um, and so it, it's pretty evenly split between film study and actual memoir. It, it's a really unusual book in that way. And, and I think for people who aren't sort of geeky about film studies and, and reading scripts and thinking about the larger issues, I think it's going to be a really sort of eye-opening book for them. For me, it was like doing what we do right here, sitting around and talking about how things affect us um, in books and TV and, and movies and all that sort of stuff. So um, my, uh, like I said, my favorite bit is how to be a Jew, but I think that might be specific to me. Um, no, I think that what, was actually one of the guys' I like, first thoughts. I thought that was the best one, too. Yeah, I think that was one of the better ones. Um I, well, I think okay. in general, I love the the project of this book um, mm-hmm. <laughs> m- more than I think I I like the individual. I mean, well, it's 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 tough because it's hit or miss. Basically, I feel like there are probably three or four great essays in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really tough project um, because what's weird about writing about movies the way she does is that she has to spend a lot of time summarizing and describing so it gets a little exhausting especially if you've seen the movie she's talking about because you you find yourself skipping over like whole pages because you're like yeah i know the story i know how you know cuckoo's nest goes like i don't need two pages describing the whole plot and that's just a difficulty in trying to write a book that appeals to people who haven't seen the movies as equally as the people who have and she covers a lot of movies i mean each one of these essays has like nine or ten and they're not like bits little parts she's trying to cover like how the entire story affected her um 
So I and I think the the how to be a Jew one actually, I think is an easier one in that regard, even though it's a broader topic, because she's talking about the different kinds of films about Jews. You know, there's the Jewish identity, there's the Holocaust, there's you know what it means to have tradition, um, and I think that might be harder than how to love because we are familiar with like if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof and you're a Jew, um, it, it actually works as a, sh a cultural shorthand for you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that makes it somewhat easier to swallow. Even if you've never seen the movie, you understand that Fiddler on the Roof is part of the DNA of Jews. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I think that the word shorthand is both the strength and the weakness of these essays because... If you're in with the shorthand, a.k.a. if you've seen the movie or if in the case of Fiddler on the Roof, I agree, like, it's so classic that, you know, it's really has this huge impact, then it, there's this great sense of, like, her being able to weave it in with her own story and you can really see the impact. But for the essays for me that, you know, I hadn't seen the movies or I felt like it was just listing a bunch of movies where in which people die, which is, like, all movies <laughs> um you know then it's it feels like what we were talking about before which is that um you know talking about movies is now a thing so if you know if a movie is going to be brought up i feel like its impact has to be huge and sometimes the shorthand just wasn't working for me but i agree like very weirdly i thought when we got to the how to be a jew one i was like oh man i don't know if like, I don't know, is this just going to be ten movies about Jews, and where's this going to go? But the, the subject is so, you know, it's so huge that it almost allowed her personal story to come through more. Although I'm kind of wondering if the real thing is that Fiddler on the Roof is just a fantastic story. <laughs> and it's a great story to structure your own life and reflections around. You know well, what I mean? I th you know, I think it, because it, it Fiddler on the Roof requires such um, an emotional wedge to be cut into a family. You know, and then she brings that back later on. So if you don't know right. the story of Fiddler on the Roof, you know, uh, the Tevye says, you know, that his daughter is dead to him and he gives her away and then the pilgrims come, they have to, they run out of Russia. Um, it's a lovely story <laughs> that has then repeated itself throughout the course of history. But right. he, uh, the main character of Fiddler on the Roof, because his daughter is going to marry a non-Jew, kicks her out of the family. And then later on in the book, it's revealed that, um, you know, basically the same thing has happened in Tara's family, that her grandfather kicked her mother out of the family and that her father had left another family entirely on the other side of the country. Um, and so there's these, there's these genetic markers that end up showing back up and maybe that's just what happens in families that bad shit happens and though it's dramatic it's not uh, it's not unsimilar for people bad shit the same bad shit happens over and over again which is that people you know do things that they regret and they get kicked out of their families for them mm -hmm. um and this might be the, the, the an instance where you know I'm, I'm kicked out of my family for speaking about my own but like you know i had a grandfather who basically did that all the time like my my papa Sai used to just say you're out you're excommunicated i'm no longer talking to you you're dead to me and you know he wouldn't talk to someone for years and years um and so you know you apply you apply obviously your own family rubrics to everything you know that's how that's how emotion is created um but i think with fiddler at least in in, in the how to be a jew section um there it, you don't have to be a jew to know that those sorts of things happen mm -hmm. right I think, hold on, I just yeah. want to jump, I'm, I'm going to try and, I have a weird thought, but and I had it earlier on when I was reading this book, and, and I, it's coming more clear to me now as we're talking about this essay in particular. I think the strength of this book, and something that's so weird and cool about this book, is um, that we're, we're in a, a very odd time, culturally, where we... Like, I feel like when we were kids, or, you know, even 20, 30 years ago, if you tried to take a movie seriously as, like, a sacred text, having influenced mm -hmm. your life and changed you personally in a, in a major way, people wouldn't 
that idea wasn't very popular. Like it was, movies were like pop culture. They were like candy. You know, they didn't affect you. They didn't, but now they are such profound texts that we interact with on like Mm -hmm. such a personal level. And I think people are starting to finally recognize that. And like the way we all grow up now watching content and engaging with these films, it's it's very it feels very personal like when you first watch a movie it's so it gets under your skin in a way um and i think that we're finally now culturally coming around to like where people well here let me give an example like if 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 you were to get up at a at a wedding and read a poem right or a great essay by like some like that that's always been a tradition right like i'm going to get up and read a great work of art mm-hmm. or reference a great work of art if like 10 10 20 years ago, somebody got up and decided that they wanted to quote Star Trek at a wedding. Like, people would think that that's kind of funny or ironic or mm-hmm. kitschy. But I feel like now we're getting to the point where people would say, no, like, that's a real text. Like, quoting a, a great Star Trek quote or making a reference to, you know, because these are our texts that we're identifying with. These are the arts, the artwork that we're, they're not, they're not, they're not so dismissible anymore. And, and I think that that essay about Jewish cultural tradition and then all these pop cultural representations of it, be it Fiddler on the Roof or uh, she talks about Jesus Christ Superstar and like mm-hmm. all these, you know, and how they affect her personally and how they relate to this bigger, more sacred, you know, capital S text of, you know, Jewish tradition that's been handed down to her and then her personal relationship with these more pop cultural variations on it. That's really fascinating to me. And I think that's mm-hmm. where the, the strength of this book comes most becomes crystal clear um and you know there are other instances of that throughout this book but i I, that's the part of this project that i found so cool is like taking movies so seriously and taking the personal experience we have with movies so seriously um because i definitely feel that way you know i feel like movies that i watch especially as a kid or as a young teenager like got under my skin in very real cool ways and changed my life and the more we talk about that and recognize that i think the better we are you know and I think yeah. that comes through in her her um, chapter, How to Be a Drunk. Yes. I that's the best one. I was going to say, oh. I think that's... Uh, yeah. I think that, those two are the standout yes. pieces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The How to Be a Drunk. And the How to Be a Drunk one is fascinating because she watches this after-school special, which I remember as clear as day, this <laughs> after-school special. The same special. one. I've never, yes. yeah, I've never seen it, but it, oh, yeah. it's incredible. It sounds so horrible. <laughs> With Linda Blair yeah. as a teenage drunk, and she watches this this after school special about why drinking is such a horrible thing and how you're going to become a booze hound and all these things, and she decides in in her infinite thirteen year old girl wisdom, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and try to become an alcoholic. It makes her want to become a drunk. <laughs> it's so crazy. I couldn't believe that. She like literally turns off the movie and goes and gets drunk for the next fifteen days. Like she just keeps yes. trying to get drunk. <laughs> I couldn't, it's like, if there was never a clearer example of how not to influence children with a movie about alcoholism, (laughs) like, oh, I thought that essay was beautiful. And because that becomes the central tent, and like, she talks about how, because she's, even the end of the essay is her sitting down with a friend who's been in AA, been sober for 20 years or whatever, and asking her if she, if, if, if Tara is an alcoholic and she realizes mm-hmm. that she's asking because she wants to be more interesting, which is what inspired her to drink. And that is a crazy level of honesty to say that like all yes. my life I've wanted to be an alcoholic because it makes me more interesting because otherwise I'm just a boring person. Like that is uh, some crazy honesty and, it, self, and insight it's... onto yourself that I loved. I loved that she was that raw. And of course, you know, then we find out that her father is an alcoholic and, and you know, there's, we won't reveal the, the, the final realization about her father, um, we'll let people read that. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think that's, in that essay itself, the movies and their depiction of alcoholics, but also the depiction of alcoholism as it relates to creating art, mm-hmm. which becomes sort of yeah. meta because obviously Tara is creating art and has created art and then she's writing about the creation of art. And you realize that there's this huge question about, you know, the struggle to create art and, and why alcohol is, you know, either the panacea or the ruin of it. Yeah. Um, and how there's not a ton of movies or books about alcoholic plumbers or, you know, whatever her example was. But there's so many about painters and writers and filmmakers or whatever it might be. And, and what about that process becomes then a romantic notion? I thought that was really um, 
compelling. Which was actually, yeah. do you remember our classmate John Hill uh, did his thesis at Bennington on right. alcoholic writers represented in film and um, right and uh, and and on books? Because and it was crazy. Like I remember at one point during his his lecture, he just put up a list of like every. Out, that he that he had read all these books or movies where there was an alcoholic writer and it was insane you were just like wow why is if anybody's a writer character in movies or books they're either a drug addict or an alcoholic almost across the board it's kind of it's depressing. really an enduring stereotype i mean yeah. it's really incredible <laughs> it how how deeply people get into that and, and she, I think she does an interesting thing in the How to Be a Drunk section, too, about how if you're a drunk guy in these movies, you can be charming and affable, yes. you can be Arthur. But if you're a woman, you're a whore. Well, in general, I think her gender approach to films is so much... That's, like, one of some of her best points are when she brings up gender. Even in the How to Be a Jew section, too, when she gets to the point where she's talking about the difference between the males and females in these movies. I've, I, mm-hmm. I thought all of her insights... Into, because the truth is... She doesn't have crazy, like, like really good insights about the movies, or really she she kind of just summarizes what the movies were, and like she's not dissecting these films on any sort of critical level. She's not no. she's not doing any sort of groundbreaking insights, bringing any groundbreaking insights. So the only ones that are that I found a little bit like more insightful than just a summary were her gender dynamics, because she would often point them out and be like, "Oh, you're right." crazy women are really different than crazy men in film and yeah. you know mm-hmm. Jewish women are really represented different than Jewish men in film and the same with the, I mean across the board whenever she got to that point I was always like oh I hadn't thought about that um, mm-hmm. I found that really really great but I don't know I mean they're kind of superficial readings of the movies and that's my biggest criticism um, you know like we were, we were mentioning Jonathan Lethem earlier and like when he talks about a movie he goes deep and he rips it apart and hits it on a level that you know for better or worse tears apart the skin of the film and shows you something underneath and she's definitely not doing that and i don't know the the most powerful moments end up being her personal connections obviously um but also the misinterpretations that she finds in these Mm -hmm. movies those are interesting and the congruencies really between her her life and the, the life that's happening on screen that becomes the important part but because she does so many of them they start to feel they become less powerful because yeah, just the I sheer agree. quantity of connective moments it reduces them all they you know because they they start to feel forced it's not like a natural connection you know like hmm. uh, it, she, it starts to feel like she's found more movies where there yeah like you were saying julia where somebody died and then she's able to connect that to a uh, death in her life and so i i don't know i think that like the alcoholism one was the best because she was able to connect to this personal great personal stories about trying to be an alcoholic as a teenager and then a very personal you know about her father being an alcoholic and that that narrative connection you know draws all these movies together in a way that like just picking out scenes of insane asylums and electric shock therapy i don't know if that really connects to her life that that powerfully yeah, I actually, I, I totally agree, and I disagree a little bit, Todd, with what you said in the intro, is that, like, I could have used way more memoir and yeah. throughout the essay. I mean, most of them are, like, a little bit about her, a lot about the movies, without, you know, analysis, and then the what I consider, like, the meat, you know, like, the crab leg of the essay. It's, like, the last, like, two pages. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, this the is so good. The crab leg of the essay. I wish... That's, that, that's the title <laughs> of the episode. The crab leg of the, of the essay. But you know what I'm saying, Ryder, right? It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, oh, I wish that this story had been prolonged over the course of the essay and the movies, you know, as put as supporting yes. fact rather than I feel like she felt this obligation of, you know, obligation's too strong, but she felt like, you know, get get the movie part, you know, like, get everybody on the same page, and then I'll tell my story, which I understand, but, like, some of the personal stories, I think, could have been made more compelling, or even, you know, the topics she chooses are crazy broad. Right. <laughs> how to be a writer, how to die with style, how to be a slut, how to be a drunk, and some of these are great, but I feel like picking more specific stories would have helped me stay with it a little more because I've probably only seen 10% of the movies mentioned in here. So this, mm, yeah. you know, that's tough for me because I don't want to read a summary of a movie I haven't seen, 
any more than I want to read a summary of a movie I've seen 50 times because it's just like, oh, you're telling me what's happening in Dr. Zhivago. Okay. Right. Well, all right, I guess. <laughs> well, my, I started so, skipping ahead. That's what, I mean, I'll be honest. Like, that's what started yeah. happening to me is my eyes would just jump to the bottom of the page when she started talking about a movie but, I hadn't seen. I would just jump ahead because I, I realized, like, it would very rarely actually change what... It, I, I wanted to get, like you were saying, to the personal aspect. I wanted her right. to get to the, yeah. the memoir side, and I didn't need Dr. Zhivago necessarily. I didn't have to get the whole plot summary in order to get to her point or her connection to it. And that, I mean, I think that's the challenge of a book like this is that you, you have to presume your audience is as well viewed as you are right. to get every single nuance. Right. Um, but then, you know, the, then I think like the, the how to be Lolita section you don't even need to have read Lolita to know what Lolita is. Right. You know what I yeah. mean? Right. Um, and, and so I think, and I, maybe that's true for the how to be a drunk section or the how to be a Jew section too. But like in the how to be Lolita bit where she's in the bathroom and, you know, the, the, the gross cousin or whatever walks in on her. Um, and you, mm. you sort of recognize her relationship with sexuality already at that point and what she doesn't know. I was sort of actually reminded of, of um, and I guess this is reasonable, of Wendy Ortiz's book, Excavation, yes, in too. those sections. <laughs> well, it also took place in the valley, right? Like she's right. Right, right, she grew right. up in the valley just like Wendy did, almost the same era. Wendy's a little bit younger maybe, but yeah, the era, but the and they talk era. about the Glendale yeah. Galleria. I was like, ah, mm-hmm. fast time to Ridgemont High. Yeah. Just all these, they all live the same era, the same place, it's so crazy. <laughs> But with all the same creepers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the same creepers are standing around the, the Chuck E. Cheese. But so I think the the Lolita chapter, specifically when she's talking about these sort of tropes of, of the power of female sexuality at a young age, um, you know, there, for the movies I hadn't seen, and, and I haven't seen a lot of the movies she's talking about either. I, I've probably seen, you know, 46% of the movies that she talks about. Um, but what was interesting to me is seeing that continuum of the same sorts of things from you know 50 years ago to today. The, the actions aren't changing. It's our access to them in media that's changing. It's all the same gross people. It's all the mm-hmm. same uncomfortable situations. We're just being delivered it in, in different forms and fashions, which I thought was interesting. Wow. So another essay that I liked, I didn't love it as much as the other two, but I liked the Mrs. Robinson one mm-hmm. uh, because that was actually, this was the only essay, I think, in which she truly lived out very closely a situation right. in a movie. You know what I mean? It wasn't her having what I would consider to be a pretty normal life and then kind of lining it up with movies this was her having a relationship with a, a much younger guy so i liked that matchup as well on the personal level yeah but overall you know like i really wanted some of these to go deeper like way deeper either either into the movie or into her own insights i mean there are a couple times where she would like go there personally and then pull back mm-hmm. um especially the death one it was like well i want to die in a cool way you know what I mean? I'm like, really? That's what you th- think about your own death? That's really, that's that's a he- that's a heavily non-heavy thing to say. You know what I mean? <laughs> Last night uh, there was this lecture here on campus about immortality. There's this fascinating guy named John Fisher who's he- heading up this project called the um, the Immortality Project, where they got a five million dollar grant to study immortality. And he said something that actually I was thinking about as it relates to the dying essay, which he said, all of life is terror management with death at the end being the thing that you're most scared of. And I was like, holy fucking shit. That is so true. true. My entire life is terror management. Just hearing that sentence scares the crap out of me. I know, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That was was, my brain both expanded and then contracted. Yeah. And then, and then he said, "It doesn't matter anyway. If we if we are able to cure all the, the diseases, eventually the universe is going to suffer a grand heat death, and it won't matter if we've cured all the diseases. You're going to die regardless." And I was like, "Well, great, dude. And I'm just going to go ahead and yeah. inject cancer into my eyeball." Wow, don't do that. <laughs> a little anecdotal <laughs> for my life there, people, about immortality that I learned <laughs> last night. <laughs> well, I think you know the the other thing for me about. Um, about the project itself and about about Tara's experiences is, though, what you were saying, Ryder, which is 
that who who knows if everything she's feeling about these films she experienced at the time she was having them or if she is laying a lot of this stuff over on top of things after the fact it's probably somewhere in between but that there's no question for us that films can have this sort of effect on us that the same effect that great poetry or a novel or whatever can have on the formation of you know our humanity um i would say more at this point do you know like more people are watching films or content television and films than ever and Mm -hmm. like i'm always amazed at how much like i guess how how much iconography from films defines huge cultural moments not just for me personally but for other for for our for all of America, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. like the power that like say James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause has had over an entire generation of people doesn't make any sense to me. Cause I watched Rebel Without a Cause. I'm like, this movie sucks. This guy's like an average actor doing this weird thing, but it was so, it was like the right movie at the right time for a certain group of people, which was all of America youth, American right. youth. And it's like, it's amazing to me how met, you know, like, how much was channeled on this one moment in film and pop culture and stuff like that's happening more and more every day for whole generations. And um, I think we're going to see more and more books like this. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that this book is actually a little late, you know, like I feel like she's, she's older than most people that are growing up with the kind of screen culture that is happening right now. And, um, and I'm so curious, I think more of this stuff is going to start coming out where people are like we should have been paying more attention to how these movies were influencing everybody and how i mean i I, you know i'm not saying it's like a a bad thing i'm just we're a little behind as far as catching up to like the power of movies well Patton oswald has a book out now too about a similar topic about his his life growing up watching movies and but you know even a tv show like dawson's creek is basically the creator saying, this is what my life was, you know, th- this is the influence of having right. watched all these movies is on this cr- right. fake character that I'm creating. But I think the flip side of it is is the weird thing is when there's movies like The Help, which I, I guess was based on a book, but nevertheless, where it's like civil Ugh. rights revenge porn, where if people think that's true, that right. something like that could have happened and those people right. wouldn't have been lynched in that city, you know that that I think does more right. damage than good Oof. to the history of civil right. rights. I'm sorry. I oh, I was just earlier. you know I I would just want to get this thought out there. It's like so what makes movies special? I think above any other art form except maybe video games is the repetition. You know, like right. we all have books that we love or you know TV shows we watch, but people who love a movie will watch that movie 50 times. So like they're really getting mm-hmm. that same message structure whole thing over and over and over and over again i mean as you would with any form of media like you know people who read harry potter 30 times as there are many of but like almost everyone that i know has has at least one movie that they've seen at least 20 times yeah i mean like what else besides music and video games involves that kind of memorization you know it's almost like worshiping the text yeah so of course they're gonna have that big Mm -hmm. of an influence you know like i've read jane eyre three times and to me that's just crazy that i've read jane eyre three times but i've seen zoolander i don't know 15 times right, right, right. <laughs> so is zoolander more likely to come up in my mind maybe maybe I love it. well i've seen galaxy quest and you've got mail about 200 times each and that comes up into my conversations on a pretty much daily basis well and then you get like into the... all, almost daily there's a quote from one of those movies. well that's just what i was gonna say so and i know where we want to end soon but like this is where i think things get really strange and maybe this bleeds into the book a little more is we all know people, and you guys probably know more than I do, who, you know, 20% of everything they say is a movie quote or a movie reference yeah. or a TV right. reference. Yeah. And at what point do you lose your part of your identity as an individual? I mean, like, Tara's a good writer, but her stories of her life aren't, you know, anything that other people... There's nothing particularly, like, detailed and special about her stories the way she tells them are beautiful but is she saying that the story of her life like this 
What if this is the only memoir she ever writes, and most of it is summaries of movies? You know, doesn't that just kind of get into your mind? Like, what? I have to tell you guys a story. I have to tell you guys a story. So I made my my wife's. I made the engagement ring that I asked um, my wife to marry me with, and um, so I had to find a silversmith who would teach me how to make a ring because I knew I wanted to do this lost wax casting and whatever. So I found this guy, and he was like. Like literally a gnome living in Evil Rock, um, like this, you know. Just he spent his entire. He's like one of the last jeweler gnome guys. Like he, he has his basement where he makes all his own stuff, and he teaches like classes to like you know two or three people at a time. Other, other wanna be gnomes because it's like you know it's a dying art form because everything is done by computers now. Like nothing is crafted by hand. Like every ring you right. buy in a ju- yeah, laser, laser cut. cut by you know they they mold them with a computer, three D printing and whatnot. So, like, what I wanted to do was so old school. So he's the only guy who still does it and can have all the gear and stuff. But I still I had to go to him for three weeks. And, like, he really didn't teach me that much. He would just sit there and be like, yeah, you got to figure this out. And then I would have to, like, sit there and carve in front of him. And so, so for, like, four hours at a time, I'd be sitting there and this guy's – and he'd be playing, like, Nora Jones or some jazz. And, like, he would just talk. He would never ask me about my life. Never, I never said a word. The guy would just tell stories. <laughs> And so it was like, you know, I was just stuck in like, you know, with Gollum while he's sitting there talking <laughs> random stories. It, 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 well, I, I mean, I'm kind of harsh on this guy because he had some pretty, some, you know, s- some stories that were not so great about women and other races. And so he wasn't a great guy. Like I, I gathered, even though he did help me out a lot, but I was paying him. But at one point he's telling you all, you know, one of his many stories and he starts telling me the story about how he used to listen to this radio show and he's talking about listening to this radio show and how he one time sent away for a decoder ring and then he got the decoder ring and he listened to the radio show to decode the ring and I'm listening and I'm going this story is sounding awfully familiar it's and a then he goes story. and the sto- and the decoder the code came back and said don't forget to drink your Ovaltine. And I was so upset. And I didn't know how to react. I was like, you just fucking told me the Christmas story as if it was but your own minute. memory. Of course he actually had absorbed it, right? Like, the, he, he wasn't trying right. to no, pawn wait, it off. No, wait, 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 That story is a memoir. That guy wrote, that. wrote a Christmas story. <laughs> Yeah. But there were thousands of kids who all had that same experience. So you Millions. think that he actually Millions. did have this experience? Because my takeaway was that Maybe. this poor guy was telling a story that he thought was really funny, that he thought was from his own childhood, but in fact he had just absorbed through pop culture by having seen this movie one time. Because why would you tell that story? If you didn't realize that it, Here- the movie had been made, you would tell that story and... Like, I, I just couldn't believe, like, to me, because I've definitely had that moment where I thought something happened to me or somebody said something to me, and of course it was me remembering a movie. But here, you know, it, I just, like, it was such a profound moment of, like, oh, this is all, ha- this happens to us all, all the time. But here, this guy was pawning it off as his own memory, and, you know, or not pawning it off, it actually was right. his own memory in his mind. And it wasn't even worth, like, contradicting him. Like, what was I going to say? Like, that was a movie. You forgot. Like, I didn't know what, how to react. It was so weird. Like, what do you say? Do you remember that time you and your friends went in search yeah, of the exactly. <laughs> And you had to take it all remember the way to Mordor? Remember when a guy stole, stole your ring and you followed him throughout the land? <laughs> remember when you discovered the secret of Watergate? Oh, no. That was all the president's men. <laughs> oh, man. But, I mean, I that the thing about that story, though, is that when you look at the stories that Tara is telling, so even the story about her creepy cousin who walks in on her in the bathroom and stares at her, that is not unlike a scene you would see in a movie of some weird fucked up thing happening. You know, it's so maybe we, it's like that theory that once you view something, you viewing it changes it. So once we've seen all these movies, viewing our own reality changes our reality um, because we stick it through the rubric of narrative. Um, And then we all die in the heat death. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think everyone in, you know, mainstream culture, especially mainstream American culture, is just so cinematic now. You know what I mean? And that's in the way that we speak, in the way that we think, in the way that other pieces of art are created. I mean, there's no doubt that, like, we've become such a visual culture, you know? And even when you look at things as simple as, like, 
how Facebook has changed over the years. You know what I mean? It's just the image is king now. The image is king mm-hmm. in our social media. It's king in, like, everything that we do. So, and that's all, I agree, cinematic influence. And we're all making movies every single day. And when we take photos of our food on Instagram, we try to get the light right. You know, And it's yeah. not because we're trying to make great pictures. It's because we're trying to replicate the things we've already seen somewhere else. Right. Basically, we're living in a, what's that word, Ryder? Matrix. Simulacra. Simulacra, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, we're living in a simulacra. Well, that was uh, Reeling Through Life, How I Learned to Live, Love, and Die at the Movies by Tara Eisen. Pick it up from the lovely folks at Counterpoint Books. Um, and we're going to come back in a couple of weeks with Galapagos, right? Yeah, by Carbonigan. And presuming Julia doesn't, you know, get eaten by a Gila monster while she's up. If I do, please just read it anyway in memoriam. Hey, uh, Tucker, while you are listening to this, um, your pop-in was really good last time. So if you want to pop in on anything, go for it. Thank you, Julia. Also, um, about your pop-in last time, don't ever fucking correct me. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, sorry, Tom? Okay, I just want to put a correction on that last statement. Um, you can go ahead and correct Todd. You can definitely do that. Uh, I don't know what to do anymore. <laughs>